Our scripture reading comes from the book of Lamentations, chapter 1, 1 through 5, and verse 20 and 22. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her, they have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there is only death. Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my sins. My groans are many, and my heart is faint. The word of the Lord. Uh, So as I mentioned, uh, this Wednesday, uh, Ash Wednesday, is the beginning of the Lent season. Uh, For those who might be new to the rhythms of some of the historic uh, church calendar, the Lent season is really a time that runs from uh, Ash Wednesday uh, to Easter. And the reason why Ash Wednesday is a, I'm sorry, the Lent season uh, is something that has historically been part of the Christian church is that it's an opportunity for the church and its regular rhythms to consider what it means uh, to repent well, to repent deeply, and also recognize the states of humanity uh, and the place that we have before God. And so much like Christmas is a season, uh, the Lent season is also a season, whereas Christmas leads to, of course, the birth of Christ, the Lent season leads us to the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. And the value that I have found in the Lent season is the reminder that we cannot understand the person and work of Jesus unless we also remember our position before God. And now we're going to be talking about this later uh, in this season, but the death of Jesus is as much good news for us as the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, In fact, to the degree that we marginalize our deep sin, which is the reason for Jesus' death, uh, it, is, it, it shows us the justice and the ju- judgment of God. To the degree we marginalize those truths is also the degree to which we do not understand the beauty and the glory of what it means for Jesus to be uh, resurrected. We lose something in the gospel when we don't take that time to recognize our position before God. And Lent refuses to allow us to move too quickly past our sin, past the judgment of God, and of course, too quickly past death. And the reason why this is particularly important for us is in the West, there is, I think, too often in the American church, this triumphalism that does not allow us to reflect deeply on our sin and the depths of brokenness 
that exist around us and in us. And so with that in mind, today, we're going to start, start a series looking at one of the more difficult books of the Bible, the book of Lamentations. And the reason why we are looking at this book is there's, there's few books that more uh, thoroughly deal with the interplay between suffering and sin and justice and judgment and, of course, as we'll see, also redemption. Now, if you've ever read through the book, you'll know that it's a bit of a disorienting book. It's hard to understand what exactly is happening in it. And yet, if we can get our heads around what's taking place in these five chapters, there's actually profound truth that I think will help us prepare for the celebration that comes on the other side of Lent, on Easter Sunday. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to attempt to see how this book of Lamentations shows us a particular kind of posture that we ought to have before God, that posture being one of lament. And so here's what we're going to look at today to try to get a bit of a framework in understanding the book of Lamentations, but also the concept of lament. We're going to take a look at the context of lament, then the need for lament, and then finally the promise of lament. So first, the context of lament. In essence... Uh, The Book of Lamentations is a series of five poems. They were written by someone who had witnessed the terrible destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. Uh, And while there's some debate about who the author is, uh, most scholars believe the the author to be the prophet Jeremiah, who is writing these poems with the voices of other people in mind. Now, whether he's the, uh, the author or not, it doesn't really matter because what he's channeling, whoever the author is, is channeling this deep suffering of those that are in Jerusalem. And in particular, I find it interesting, and we'll see this throughout the rest of the series, in particular, he uses the voice of women to frame the suffering being experienced And I hope that we can draw this out each week because what's interesting is how often, even in this context, the way the Bible elevates the voice of women as a way of showing the importance of their perspective on the suffering. Time and time again, we're going to see that over and over, particularly in a context and in a culture that did not value the voice of women. The Bible upends some of the cultural norms, and we see this happening through these poems. But in order to best understand the context of the book, we must also get a little bit of the backstory on Israel's history. So let me show you quickly how we've gotten to this point of Jerusalem being destroyed by the Babylonians. Um, We need to go back to understanding how God became, uh, or how Israel rather, became God's covenant people. Uh, This covenant that existed between Israel and God was a covenant of grace in which God promised to make the offspring of Abraham into a great nation, a great people, and that great people would bless the entire world. But those in Israel, across the, the, the course of their history, would have a lot of ups and downs. There'd be a lot of things that would take place over the course of time. And yet, time and time again, God would prove himself to be faithful to the promises that he had made. One of the best examples of this, of course, is uh, the ways that he kept his promises when the people of Israel were in captivity, in bondage, slavery, 
in Egypt. Right? So in the book of Exodus, you see how God was faithful to his people that though they were trapped in bondage, he delivers them, he protects them, he gives them his law in order that they might flourish, and then he leads them into the promised land, a land that would eventually become known as Israel. However, with all, as, as with all covenants, there were certain conditions that the people of Israel had to um, agree to in order to enter into this covenant. God had promised to make them a people that would bless the whole world, and Israel was required to obey and to trust the Lord as he leaded, led and guided them. And this is very important in understanding where we've gotten to now in Lamentations. And there's a really interesting interchange in Exodus 19 where these promises are solidified, right? So God says, I will make you a people, but I need you to obey my law and to trust me. And in Exodus 19, Moses, on behalf of the people, declares, yes, we will do just that. And then in the following chapter, chapter uh, 20, God gives them the Ten Commandments. So what you have is Israel saying, yes, we will trust you, we will obey your commandments, and then God gives, him, gives them those Ten Commandments. But what's interesting is that it does not take long for Israel to break their end of the covenant. Because then by the time you get to chapter 32 of Exodus, you see one of the most pivotal events in Old Testament history, which is the golden calf. So you have Israel promising to, that God will be their God, that they will trust him, that they will obey him. And then they create this golden calf and they reject God as the only one worthy of worship by creating this other false God. But what's interesting is that God in his mercy and in his love, he still keeps his promise even though they did not keep theirs. And despite their unfaithfulness, he still leads them into the promised land. And he still gives them a king, and their kingdom would end up flourishing. So God still, in the midst of their disobedience, still is faithful to them. Yet once again, what we'll, what we'll see over the course of Israel's history is eventually they would again stray from God. And as a result, after King Solomon, the nation of Israel would split into two different nations. So Israel would become two. Uh, Israel would be in the north, and then Judah would be in the south. Now, Israel, in the northern kingdom, they had this whole long string of very evil, wicked kings who did unspeakable things. They were wicked. And eventually, they had become so wicked that God uses the Assyrians to capture Israel as a means of judgment against Israel. Now, Judah, who was in the south had several good kings who attempted to honor God and uh, desired to rule justly and righteously, but eventually they too fell into deep evil, and by 586 BC, Judah fell to the Babylonians, which is where the great city of Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. And now, as a result of the Babylonians coming in, Jerusalem has been laid to waste. And the people of Israel we are told, were just absolutely brutalized by the Babylonians as they were conquered. Uh, there's so much that in, within this conquering that's even difficult for us to name and to say. But men, or, uh, women and children were brutalized in this assault as a way of the Babylonians being able to emphatically show Israel that you have no recourse against our domination. And if people actually survived, many of them were taken into captivity and sent off to Babylon. 
And this would be uh, an absolutely brutal siege when the Babylonians came to the city. One of the things that they did is they would choke out all incoming resources so that the city would end up having no food, no water, of course, resulting in hunger and in thirst so intense that in one of the chapters of Lamentations, if you were to read through, it alludes to the possibility of cannibalism that was happening within the walls. This was an intense and brutal siege against the people of Israel. And eventually the city would be overrun, uh, overrun the, the walls would be torn down, and the temple would be destroyed. Now the temple was the great symbol of God's promises. It was a marker of God's people uh, being in this covenant relationship with him. It was a stunning declaration of the renown of their great nation. And now their city and their great temple have been destroyed. And in the opening verses, the writer poetically describes now the state of affairs and where Israel finds themselves. In verse 1, the poet contrasts their former glory with now the destitution that lays before them. He, he speaks of uh, our city was once full of people and now there's no one. He says that we were queens and rulers among the nations and now we're slaves. In verse 2, he speaks of how all their friends and allies are now gone. And they've been left completely alone. In verse 5, he emphasizes that there, were, uh, there, once, there was, that those who once were their enemies have now become their masters. And then just to give a little extra picture of what's happening during this time uh, for Israel, if you read Psalm 137, which is a very difficult psalm to read in that it's, it, it's describing some brutal things, the psalmist is writing about the same event. And as you read it, you can see the additional humiliations that the Babylonians sought to inflict on the people of Israel. And one of the things that you see in there is that the captors commanded the people of Israel to, quote, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now, Robert Alter, who is an Old Testament scholar, uh, he notes that this is likely a reference to the singers of Jerusalem's temple because these singers were known for the beauty of their songs of joy and triumph. And so as a result, the Babylonians forced the singers to sing their songs for entertainment, essentially by asking them to sing their traditional songs of victory and favor. The Babylonians were mocking the people as they attempted to humiliate them further. Now, as I've thought about this context and what the people of Israel were suffering through, you know, I don't think we have anything close to this. Like, we don't have categories for understanding how devastating this is. Uh, we don't have a temple. We don't have a great city in the same way that they did. Um, but one of the things that I think could be, just to give you a picture, it, it pales in comparison, but it would be similar to us watching Washington, D.C. burn while our enemies tear up our constitution, uh, forcing us to denounce all of its core tenets, including our rights to religious freedom, all while doing unspeakable things to the weakest among us, and then to top it off, make us sing the Star Spangled Banner for their amusement. Again, I don't know that it fully fits the category of what is being experienced here by Israel, but imagine that scene in Washington, D.C., and amplify it a hundredfold. I mean, that's the scene of Lamentations. 
And this book, as we go through it, we will see this, is a poetic expression of the great sorrow that came as a result of the death of Israel. And the reason why I put it that way is that there are scholars who have noted that Lamentations is essentially a funeral dirge. Or rather, it's a poem, it's a, a, a song, a cry of mourning over the loss, over the sorrow of this great city that is now gone. It's a lament. And in Lamentations, essentially what we have is the poetry of eulogy. It's poetic language declaring what has now come to death. And there's much for us to learn in this eulogy. So that's the context, right? So that's everything that's leading us up to what we see in Lamentations. But we also need to see the need for it. Why is this posture of lament so important? Um, now, again, lament is something that we are not particularly familiar with. However, lament is an integral part of what it means to pray in the way the Bible commands us to pray. Uh, Sung Chan Ra, who wrote a book on lamentations and admittedly was quite formative for me uh, as I was developing this series, um, he puts lament this way. He says that lament recognizes the struggles of life and cries out for justice against existing injustice. Another theologian said that lament is the language of suffering. Uh, Kathleen O'Connor, uh, who's, I put her quote there in your bulletin, in the reflection quote, but in her commentary on lamentation, she calls it the poetry of truth-telling as lament names suffering, questions why God allows suffering, cries out to him to relieve that suffering, and often does not resolve. Those questions and that pain seemingly left unanswered. Now, as I read that understanding of lament, it becomes very clear to me why we are not good at lament. Because what lament forces us to do is it forces us to name suffering that exists and then just sit in it and be shaped by it and not demand or insist on answers for it, but just sitting in it. And the American church in particular is terrible at doing this because though we do suffer in life, broadly speaking, we do not understand the true depths of suffering that can often be experienced by people who have no recourse against the suffering that they're experiencing. I think a great example, there are a few contexts in the United States where that kind of suffering um, is broadly understood by a large group of people. The one place, one of the few places that I think it's um, very well understood is in the black church in America. There is a deep, rich tradition of lament in the African-American church. Now, their, their story, of course, the African-American church is, uh, it's not the same story as Israel, but they do know what it is to experience deep injustice and violence to experience that deep injustice and violence for generations, suffering under wicked oppression, all while crying out to God in lament. And if we want to learn well what lament is, we should listen to the voices of our African-American brothers and sisters, for theirs is a rich tradition of trusting God, even in the midst of what feels like death. 
I mean, it's a miracle of God's grace that the Black Church has persevered and still exists with the strength that it has today. And statistically, the Black Church is still the most faithful and enduring church that the American church has seen. The American Bible Society, a number of years ago, noted that the person most likely to most regularly pray and read their Bible are African-American women. Which means that if you want a picture of the most faithful, praying, and committed Christian, statistically, look to black women, who have arguably, over the course of history, suffered most under the injustices of our nation. And you do not come to the other side of those injustices without a deep, rich tradition of lament. Yet again, this category of prayer is just something most people historically have not been good at embracing. What's interesting to me is that the book of Psalms, which is Israel's uh, hymnal, over 40% of the, of the Psalms are lament. Now, when you compare that to many of our modern hymnals and the ways that we sing songs, uh, Glenn Pemberton, in his book, Hurting with God, notes that the hymnal of, he, he noted three hymnals in particular, that the Church of Christ, only 13% of their uh, hymnal is lament. Uh, the historic Baptist hymnal is only 13% lament. Um, the historic Presbyterian hymnal is 19%. Doing a little bit better there. Uh, but Ra takes it a step further. And several years ago, um, he looked at the top 100 songs on CCLI. Now, CCLI is a website that manages the licenses of uh, most contemporary music. And he found that less than 5% of the top 100 songs could be classified as lament. And he goes even further just to note that he was very, very generous in his criteria of how he defined lament. And I'm drawing this out to say that the American church does not know how to lament. We do not know how to just sit in suffering without seeking and demanding answers. Because often we believe that there ought to be recourse, there ought to be actions to end the suffering. But what you see in Lamentations is suffering that does not seem to have any answer and it does not seem to be coming to an end. And in fact, if you trace the course of history with Israel, those who are captured in this siege would die in captivity. They'd never actually experience the freedom that they had once experienced beforehand. So there's deep suffering that does not seem to have any end. And as a result of that, they lament. And so what Lamentations does is it forces us to listen to suffering, to pay attention to suffering and engage it not in some triumphalistic way or even some distant, disconnected way, but rather to sit with it, to be present and to even engage with the suffering that exists both in us and of course around us. And what I want us to see and what I hope we see is that we ought to be a people on mission because we cannot see church as a means of coming together and finding it sufficient for it to be simply a way to enjoy one another or to escape the realities of a broken world, but rather you and I have neighbors and co-workers and loved ones 
who to varying degrees are suffering, who lament, who are crying out for answers, often without hope. And if we jump too quickly to victory or celebration or giving pat answers to things, we do an injustice to the painful experiences that people endure. And so what I want us to hopefully understand and see, and I think we can probably grasp this, I think, I think we know this to be true, is that when someone has experienced true depths of darkness, I mean, have really suffered, you cannot get someone to just snap out of whatever they're feeling. It's just not possible. And too often, I think there is this desire, whether for ourselves or for others, when there's some kind of deep suffering, to just get past that suffering and to step into feeling victorious and joyous. But if you've ever known someone, for example, in deep depression, and you tell them to snap out of it, we know it doesn't work. Right? You cannot tell someone who's just lost a child to snap out of it. It doesn't work. You know, back to the, the, uh, the African-American experience, you cannot tell an entire people who suffered under oppression for 400 plus years, who then only 56 years ago saw discrimination laws finally taken off the books to just snap out of it and assume that things ought to just now all of a sudden be better. It doesn't work that way. Rather, what lament teaches us is that when people are in actual places of darkness and pain and suffering to just sit with it. Which is why for us, we do something every single week. Right? Most weeks during our prayers of the people, we bring to God lamentable things that are in the world, broken things that are in the world. That's this, this prayer of the prayers of the people rhythm. It's not perfunctory. It is not simply to fill time. It is fundamental to being shaped into a people who are wide-eyed and conscious and clear about why the church exists. We do not believe that the church is a place, again, to hunker down or to escape the realities of this world, but rather we believe the church is a people of God being shaped and formed to engage the realities of the world. And if we are not in regular rhythms of lament, then when we are, or if we're not in regular rhythms when we're a church together, gathered together, I am confident that we will not be a people who can really deal with well the suffering of a world when we are then sent out into the world, which is why every week we spend that time, we, we are in that posture. Okay, now all that's, while all that may be true, and it, that's a lot of framing on the Book of Lamentations, I know, there is a final dynamic that I hope sets a certain course for us over the course of the whole series. It's a final dynamic of lament that I think is most helpful and actually thoroughly uh, puts us in the place that we need to be in relation to God and our posture of lament. As we've just seen, Israel has suffered in many ways, in ways that we could not possibly fathom. But what I find beautiful is the response given in the midst of that suffering. Because right? as you read, as you read even through this, this first chapter, what we see is not them looking for easy fixes or easy solutions. Of course, they're not, they don't run or they don't hide from the suffering that's existing around them. Rather, what we see here is that they turn to the one, once again, who made promises to them. 
We, they turn to the one who they know has been faithful to them time and time again. And this, I think, leads us finally to the promise of lament. See, there, again, there's a certain kind of posture that they have, that Israel has. Because not only do they just, they don't just name the suffering that they're experiencing, but it's also important to see their posture. Look at verse 22, or verse 20 and 22 that I uh, included there. Verse in verse 20, in the midst of all this turmoil and struggle and suffering, we see them say in verse 20, see, Lord, how I am distressed. What's interesting that's in how they posture themselves is that lament is not just complaining or crying out or hating life circumstances. Lament is complaining and crying out and hating life circumstances before God. It is seeing injustice and as a result, coming before the God of justice. It is experiencing torment and fear in coming before the God of comfort and strength. Lament is experiencing loss and destruction in coming before a God of restoration. That's what lament is. Lament is not crying out into the darkness. Lament is crying out to God himself. And interestingly, what I have, what I have experienced and what I have seen is that we're currently in this cultural moment, particularly when it comes to younger generations, who in, in modern times are actually very conscious of the injustices in the world, very conscious of the brokenness in the world, and that is good and right. However, here's my concern, is that too often, the expression of that injustice and that brokenness gets disassociated from God himself. Right, so in more contemporary modern justice movements, there is this cry about injustice, and rightly so. But too often, it's not true lament, for many do not cry out to a God of justice. Rather, they're crying out into the darkness. But true lament understands that whenever we are experiencing that deep suffering, we come before a God who hears those concerns, knows those concerns, and wants us to come before him. And Israel does just that. We see that in verse 20. But then the second thing that I think is interesting is verse 22. So let me read for you verse 22. It says this. It says, let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me because of my sin. My groans are many and my heart is faint. Now what is that? That is the poet putting vengeance and retribution and justice into God's hands. It's the poet making known where his loyalty and trust is ultimately going to lie. That he's, he's bringing before God this deep injustice and saying, God, vengeance is yours. You deal with those who have committed these injustices. For ultimately, you are the one who will see justice uh, reign over all things. That God will deal with the justice of the world. And what I love about this vision that we see presented here in this passage is that there's this deep reliance that in the end, long term, God is going to be the one that brings victory for his people. Even in the midst of this suffering, 
hope is still there, knowing that God would be the one who's ultimately in control. And one of the beautiful things that, of course, we have that the people of Israel did not have is greater clarity about how God would go about accomplishing that victory, about how God would go about accomplishing justice and crushing wickedness. Of course, we know that God accomplishes all of this through his son, that, of course, Jesus would be the one who proves that God sees the wickedness of this world. He's the one that proves that God intends to deal with the wickedness of this world, that there is not only someone who's going to deal with it, but the other thing is that it's also someone who knows what it means to lament. I mean, the beauty of who Jesus was is that, yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully man who experienced the deep sorrows of man. I mean, there's a couple amazing places where Jesus actually does lament and where there's no answers to his lamentations. You know, in the garden before Jesus goes to the cross, he cries out to the Lord, Lord, would you take this cup from me? He knows the suffering that he's about to experience. And he cries out to the Father. On the cross, you have Jesus quoting Psalm 22, lamenting before God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is that? And that's Jesus lamenting. It's Jesus showing the true posture of lament. Again, the true posture being before God. And so it's important for us to see and to know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the angst of injustice that we will be reading about throughout Lamentations, that he is the hope for those who are suffering, even in the midst of this lamentable world. And so the challenge will be for us, how do we sit and be shaped by the suffering of the world while also clinging to the hope that Jesus will one day crush wickedness, end all injustice, end all suffering. This will be the challenge for us over the course of the next several weeks, but it's also the challenge for us today. I recognize that for some of us here, maybe you are in a lamentable situation. Maybe even now you are suffering in the midst of some kind of brokenness It seems like there is no hope. It seems like there is no answer. And all you can really do right now is just sit in it. I want you to know that there is hope beyond that suffering. I don't know what that's going to mean. And I don't know how God will work those things out. But when we cling to the hope of the cross, when we cling to the hope that Jesus provides, we can have security to know that even though we're in the midst of that suffering... God has plans beyond what we can see in the midst of that situation now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Um, Lord, for the reminder in your word that there are things that are, um, of course, beyond our control, that there's suffering uh, that we will experience uh, that we may not ever have answers for uh, the reasons why. And God, I pray that we would not... Uh, too quickly run to answers that would not be sufficient, uh, but that we also wouldn't despair, but that we would see in the work of Jesus hope that extends beyond what we are immediately experiencing. Give us eyes to see the things that you are doing even in the midst of suffering. 
And may we be able to lament well, crying out to you, trusting that you hear us, trusting that you love us, trusting that your promises are true. Even in the times when we don't feel like they are, help us to know uh, that we can trust you, for you are a God who keeps your promises. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.